Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tullett. Alexa, how you doing? I'm doing well, you all. How are you doing? I have a question for you. I want you, I, I want you to guess who who do you think is the the most famous academic in the English-speaking world? And so by academic, I mean uh, somebody who currently has an academic appointment, not like just somebody who has a PhD and went and did other things, but somebody who's like, has an academic appointment at a university. Like if you're like, who's the most famous academic, who would you come up with? Oh, man. Um, most famous academic. Um, I'm trying to think of like who gives like really popular TED Talks. Um, well, just to give you a hint, there's there's a Canadian who might who might make the list. A Canadian, um, like Naomi Klein. <laughs> She's an academic. I didn't know that. Um, I'm not 100 percent sure, actually. I see. Uh, we'll we'll look into that. Um, no, I was thinking of Jordan Peterson. What? Okay, wait. What are these metrics? I just random person has heard of him. So you think that he may, may be the most well-known person with an academic appointment of any discipline? Yeah, I think so. I think it's plausible. Well, okay, so so a couple a, a couple caveats. He the reason he was on my mind is he uh, he's emeritus now, and he recently wrote a thing in the National Post that was like, "Here's why I quit," which is kind of bullshit. Like, you know, I mean. Going emeritus isn't exactly quitting. I mean, you still keep. Your, <laughs> I would love to quit that way. Um, and and anyway, and as far as I know, this all happened a while ago. So God knows why he's writing the piece now. And it's also like very ranty about a bunch of other stuff. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. I don't know if you've read it. Um, no, I have not. I'm actually like pretty behind on this this genre of literature called quitlet that I just learned about like a month ago. Oh, that's why he's – see? So he's, like, just getting in on the quitlet, like, trend. Yeah, I think so. Um, so it's really interesting that you say that um, and that you are – like, you're you're quantifying this by thinking of, okay, who would be recognized by the average person? Um, because literally two hours ago, I ran into a friend in the parking lot, um, and he was like, I was just thinking about you because I heard something about someone from the place where you went to school, uh, Peterson – and I was like, oh, yeah, Jordan Peterson. I know who you're talking about. Um, so that your answer checks out. Yeah. So that's that's exactly my experience, too, is, well, back when I used to travel, you know, cab drivers often ask you, where are you from? What do you do? And uh, saying that you're from the University of Toronto, like 50% of the time people would be like, oh, do you know Jordan Peterson? Uh -huh. So it's like regular people not only know who he is, like they know his university affiliation. That's yep. kind of wild. Yep, that is yeah, that is wild. So so anyway, I thought that he might qualify as most famous academic in the English-speaking world, even though, I mean, technically, I guess he's now emeritus, so maybe he doesn't count. Uh, but then, then I remembered something important, which is that Dr. Oz has an academic appointment at Columbia University. There you go. He's like in the School of Medicine. I knew there had to be somebody bigger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, but I think it's do Dr. Oz. I would imagine is bigger, but I think Jordan is a, like a very close second. That's possible. Um, wait, so, so okay, so what is Doctor Oz's deal again? Um, well, he's like he's a neurosurgeon okay. by training, um, but he also promotes a bunch of like quack stuff on his 
medical show, like miracle cures for this and that. Um, I think he's like dabbled in some COVID denialism and he's running for Senate, I think, in Pennsylvania as a Republican. Okay, great. Cool. Thanks for the update. (laughs) <laughs> no problem. <laughs> you know, where I got all this from his Christmas card. We're 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 pretty close, uh-huh. the families. Yeah. Yeah. Does Jordan Peterson write you Christmas cards too? Are you in touch? No, no, I'm off his list. I must like, talk too much shit about him, you know. <laughs> the guy holds a grudge, I suppose. Not fair, but what are you gonna do? I always think of when people mention Dr. Oz, I always first think of Dr. Phil. Um and then I was gonna say, like, wow, the two most famous academics, according to us, are are both experts in psychology, like some speaks to the popularity of our discipline, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's something to that. Uh, we're definitely a popular discipline uh, for better or worse, but I don't think, I think Dr. Phil, is he even like, is his PhD in psychology? I thought he was like a, I don't know, a naturopath or some, <laughs> some weird show like that. <laughs> I'm just making this he up. Like, you know, medicine. Yeah, exactly right. Anyway, um, why don't why don't we talk about what we're drinking? And Alexa, you have a very special beer to share, don't you? Yes, I do. I'm really excited about this. So um, my beer is a Marzen, I believe. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. Um, and this beer was uh, sent to me by our friend and listener, Alan. Um, and so this was uh, exciting for me because. Uh, Alan emailed me to, to let me know um, that he would be sending me beer. And I thought that was pretty cool. But my assumption was that he was going to send me beer that he purchased at the store. Um, and so like when I received this beer and it was like clearly beer that he had made um, and it was like so nicely packaged, like every beer was like in its own little like sleeve and there was like um, material to keep it cool and stuff like that. Um, but I also did realize at that point that I had like a case of homemade beer from someone who I only know from like a few, a few emails um, about about his responses to the podcast. Um, But nevertheless, I drank those beers or I've I've had some of them and I'm going to drink one today. Uh, And this one. Yeah. So this one is a a Marzen. He brewed it in April. Um, And what he told me about it was that it was lagered at 50 degrees until October when he bottled it. Um, So I'm going to try to, uh, to to co-opt his language to sound like I know something about beer today. Wow. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to that. I'm pretty sure that Alan isn't going to try and poison you. I mean, he seems like a trustworthy guy. <laughs> but like you pointed out, this is somebody that we only know from the internet. So uh, I did enjoy like offering mystery beers to to my house guests. <laughs> you tried it on them first, just to be safe. <laughs> I actually did. How are you feeling? Any wooziness? <laughs> any like, sick to your stomach? Anything? No? Great. Great, great. Um, okay. We So uh, we do have some beer-related follow-up that uh, somewhat pertains to the last episode, um, somewhat pertains to an earlier episode. These are just definitions of terms. So uh, Alan, among other people... Um, wrote in to tell us that a smash like remember last time i was like well this is a mm-hmm. smash ipa what's that mean it means single malt single hop so we continue not to know anything about beer i think that's going to come up later in the second beer that you you're going to talk about right correct and also alan i realized going back through my emails to get some of these details has explained this definition to me at least twice um great so, <laughs> great so great. i definitely we i definitely should have known when you had you 
mentioned the years of Brewers of Smash last right. time. Right. So th- thanks for those repeated explanations, Alan. Yes, Eventually you. it's going to stick. Um, while I was looking up beer-related follow-up, do you remember when you had that giant can of beer yes. a while ago? Yes. Yeah. So uh, listener Christian Jordan wrote in to say that that is called a crowler. It's a growler, but in can form. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Cool. So we we thank every listener who writes into educators about beer. Yeah. Um, we always enjoy that. Keep it coming. Yeah. Bob K on Twitter is the other person who who educated us about what a smash is. So yeah, now we know very slightly more about beer than we did before. Yep. Great. Um, what are you drinking? Oh, man. Okay. So I was actually 100% planning to drink a beer. And then I opened the fridge and my girlfriend had drunk them all. So there weren't any. Terrible. So I, I know. I know. We're going to have words. But um, didn't you drink it, her beer? Yes, last I know. Time? I did drink her beer. So, so it's payback. probably she's like, getting. yes, it's payback. That's exactly what it is. Um, but instead, um, I'm going to be drinking, uh, this Elijah Craig rye that we picked up the last time we were in the States. Um, it's like, I think it's like 94 proof. So it's kind of, it's a bit intense. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's very good. Yeah. All right. So bold anyway, move. bold move. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, I'd also like to show off my steam whistle bottle opener. That Go is a damn nice opener. To, to Toronto days. Wow. You've been carrying that around with you ever since Toronto. Yep. It's always in my pocket. <laughs> it never leaves your pillow. <laughs> you like sleep with it under your pillow. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Excellent. Um, okay. Well, do you do you care to say a few words about the beer? This beer is delicious. Um, so yeah, I will say any like initial hesitation that I had about mystery beer was like because I've had several of these now, um, was like immediately dispelled. Like these are some of the best beers um, that I've had. So I don't know. I'm going to, I guess I'm going to have to start making trips out to, to Kentucky to get more. Awesome. Yeah. I'm very sad that I'm missing out on Alan's beer, but he's kindly invited us to stop by whenever we're uh, in his neck of the woods and I'm going to have to do that. Okay. So yeah, I'm, I'm drinking something kind of strong. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people think often that getting a little loaded <laughs> makes you more authentic, which is, as it happens, what we're talking about today. So, Alexa, do you want to do you want to introduce us to the topic of authenticity? So it's it's funny that you use that segue, Yoel, because actually this that example was kind of like where this question started to be interesting to me. So I feel like I don't know if this happens in real life, but I feel like on TV shows sometimes people will defend their actions by saying like, Hey, I was really smashed. And, you know, so you can't trust anything that I did or said because that wasn't the real me. Um, and so like, I've always had the reaction to that. Like, well, was that less the real you or more the real you? Um, and this is actually a question that is like directly addressed, um, by the work of one of my colleagues, uh, Katie Garrison. So, um, we're going to talk about, her paper today, um, but we're also going to sort of talk about the uh, the question of authentic- authenticity in general. Um, so, so her take is sort of like this examination of whether we're more authentic when we're sort of behaving impulsively, or actually, are there times when we think that the more authentic thing to do is behave in a controlled way? Um, which was kind of the the question that was initially interesting to me. Um, but I'd also like to sort of generally talk about 
what we mean when we say authenticity. Like, is this a meaningful construct? Um, can people tell you how authentic they are um, as individuals? Can we trust those reports? Um, and also, I guess um, one thing that I'm curious about is whether it's desirable um, to be authentic. So I think that the way we typically talk about it, people want to be seen as more authentic. Um, but yeah, I could I can imagine exceptions to that. Um, so I guess a lot of sort of conceptual uh, questions about um, authenticity today, but a couple of specific papers. Um, and speaking about or, or speaking of whether or not you can trust people's reports on whether or not they're authentic, um, I guess you and I both uh, filled out an authenticity scale, right? We did. We did. So this is the first time that I've measured my own authenticity. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to, to see um, how we compare to each other. Um, so yeah, this is a scale that, that you found. Uh, this is, I, I think, a widely used scale um, from Wood et al. in the Journal of Counseling Psychology 2008. Uh, the paper is called The Authentic Personality, a Theoretical and Empirical Conceptualization and the Development of the Authenticity Scale. So they draw on I think a lot of um, literature from clinical psychology to come up with these three components of authenticity. Um, the first is authentic living, which is basically like, do you say you live in a way that expresses your um, authentic values? So and a sample item from that uh, subscale would be, I think it is better to be yourself than to be popular. Um, and the second subscale is self-alienation, and that's basically, do you feel like you know what your real self is like? So a sample item there would be, I feel out of touch with the real me. Um, and the, the third item is basically, like, how much are you influenced by other people? They call it accepting external influence. Uh, so an item there is, I always feel I need to do what others expect me to do, right? So typically, I think the way that the scale is used is that you have independent scores for each of these three subscales, and they're just like sum scores. So you just add up, it's a one to seven, uh, and you just add up the scores that you give for each of those four items per subscale um, to, to come up with your score for each one. Um, so yeah, I would, I'll, I'll go first. Maybe we go subscale by subscale. Uh, so for authentic living, right? So that's uh, stuff like, um, I think it's better to be yourself than to be popular. I got a 15. Oh, Wow. Um, okay, I got a twenty on authentic living. Right, so you're you're right at where the kind of they they give some like norming data in the paper. Uh -huh. That's around where they have different samples, community samples, undergrads, and those are like a twenty twenty two um, some typically. Uh -huh. So so yeah, you're 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 pretty much you know around the average, um, and I'm way low. That's very interesting yeah. to me. What did you say to that first item? So. Um, I think it is better to be yourself than to be popular. I gave it a four. Uh -huh. um, so I like sort of neither agree nor disagree with that item. Uh -huh. Like, you know, uh, I guess you shouldn't be fake. At the same time, sometimes being yourself is kind of annoying or bad, right? right? Like maybe being yourself is being cranky or not taking a shower or doing all sorts of other things that other people don't like. Uh -huh. And I thought, well, maybe in a lot of contexts, you know, your true self is sort of 
something that you better keep under control. And therefore, I don't know if it's always better to be yourself than to be popular. Maybe in order to be liked, you know, you uh, pretend to be in somewhat of a better mood than you actually are. So as not to bring other people down with some stuff that you're kind of irrationally upset about, mm -hmm. for example. Yeah. Um, you don't complain, even though you feel like complaining, etc. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, medium can't really decide. Uh-huh. For me, that question was like, so I guess the questions are phrased as like, you know, how appropriate do you think or how much does this apply to you or something like that? And for that item in particular, I was like, well, nobody would be like, oh, Alexa. When I think of Alexa, I think she definitely chooses to be herself rather than chooses to be popular. You know, like I just don't think that's like a, yeah. a character trait of mine. So I also put four for that. But I think there are other items that are more like um, you feel your self in across situations or something like that for those i think i've rated pretty high yeah so the other items on the subscale are i always stand by what i believe in mm -hmm. and i give myself a five for that uh -huh. like always is really strong and i would say like sometimes i'm just i don't want to have an argument about politics with my parents and if they some, say something that uh -huh. I'm like not on board with, I'm just like, oh, yeah, OK, so what are we having for dinner? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So so yeah, I, I, I don't want to like max that out. So I thought like a five was like reasonable for that. Uh -huh. um, I am true to myself in most situations. Um, you know, I gave myself a three on that. And it was mainly because I don't really know what true to myself means. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was just kind of confusing. And I didn't want to agree with something where I was like, I don't even really know what you're asking me. So I just said three to be like, you're such a responsible like, participant. I was like, yeah, <laughs> I'm true to myself. That sounds good. Maybe I overthought this. I like, I, I just don't really know what, how to interpret true to yourself. Right. So I, I, I feel like I'm not often being forced into like dramatic moral compromises, right. Where it's like, people are like, agree that white supremacy is great. You know? And yeah. I'm like, Oh no, what do I do? Like, do I live my values? Right. I mean, in some situations, like if it's about professional stuff, then I feel like I have no problem like having an argument about, mm -hmm. um, I don't know, the right way to do research or whatever. But like in social situations, eh, no. I mean, it, it, sometimes I just like don't want to have the fight. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. Yep, I know what you mean. Yep. Okay. And then finally, I live in accordance with my values and beliefs. Um in there, I only gave myself a three, and that's because I feel like there's lots of things that I do that I shouldn't be doing, such as, for example, eating meat, yep. which I do all the time, but I feel bad about it. Uh -huh. And I feel like I should be donating a, donating a lot more of my income to charity. And every year I'm like, yeah, I should do that. And then I'm like, yeah, but I don't know, feel poor at the end of the year. And I don't I don't want to give away as much money as I wanted to. Uh -huh. And so then I give some away, but I always feel like it's not really like as much as it ought to be. Yeah, yeah. And so like I... You know, I have self-control problems is what I'm saying. Yeah, no. I mean, I am curious. So the like question of social desirability becomes really clear when you're um, trying to answer these questions because it, it does seem like um, the socially desirable thing is to rate yourself as like highly authentic, like you're, you know, you are true to yourself in all of these situations. Um, but also, like, yeah, like uh, living in line with your values and stuff. I, I mean, I think if most people are being really honest with themselves, probably we're all doing a pretty bit bad job of that. Or like there are some, a few exceptions, but, um, so yeah, I don't know. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like, I feel like if I were really living in accordance with my values, like, I'd be a lot more like Peter Singer. You know, I'd be a vegan. I'd be giving away a lot more money. I would fly uh-huh. a lot less. Uh-huh. You know, that's terrible for the environment. Uh-huh. And I, d- I don't, don't do any of those things. Right. So how am I going to give myself above the midpoint yeah. on that? That just doesn't seem right. That's fair. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're really inauthentic, but you might be a good person. But at least I'm honest about it. Okay, so uh, next up, we have self-alienation. So, like, I feel out of touch with the real me. Um, And their higher now is, like, um, you feel more self-alienated. And there I got a 14. What did you get? A six. So this is, like, where I'm, like, really far from the sample mean on this one and the next one, actually. Um, but yeah, those those items were weird to me. So like, what does it mean to feel out of touch with the real me? Do you feel that way, Yuel? I guess so. I, yeah. Yeah. So like, I, I don't really know what those are asking. And then so I was like, well, I guess sort of. I don't really know how I feel inside. I feel out of touch with the real me. I feel alienated from myself. Um, I feel as if I don't know myself very well. I mean, I do feel like, okay, so the spirit of this is like, are you sort of a mystery to yourself? Uh And I feel that I totally am. Uh And like, I'm almost confused by this idea that there's like this deep underlying true thing that like you could get to know if you worked hard enough at it. I think that's like basically illusory. I feel like it's just this like bundle of impulses to do different things. Mm -hmm. And like, sometimes like I want to play Zelda, (laughs) but then also as as we've discussed, also I know that I'm going to feel bad if I do it all day, but also I know that I should let myself do things I want to do a little bit or else I'm going to feel bad, you know, like in a bigger picture sort of way. Like, Oh, why are you always Mm -hmm. working on stuff instead of doing the things that you want to do that are fun? Which of those corresponds to my true self? I have no idea. Uh Right. So I don't kind of don't even know how to answer those questions. That's interesting. So I feel like this is again, a situation where I was like, I'm just really taking these. It's sort of like my impulse, but I, I share some of your feelings in two ways. So one is, so the first item is, um, yeah, I feel no, there's there's one that's like I don't know how I really feel inside. Yeah, that one I identify with more. So like I feel like I can sometimes uh either like not be able to accurately label my emotions or like I don't know where they're coming from. Um so that I related to a little bit. The other ones that are like um yeah, I don't I feel out of touch with the real me or something like that. I guess I also sort of don't know what that means. And so I was like, well, I don't relate to that. But one way in which, I don't know if this is self-alienation. One way in which I struggle with the concept of authenticity is I think that when people are talking about being authentic, they usually mean um, that you're very consistent across situations. Um, And that if you were to say, like, express different views um, in different situations, that would be an indication that you're being inauthentic, right? So in in some situation, or if you were to act differently in different situations, you would be like basically being deceptive or like untrue to yourself in some situations than others. And I guess I sort of wonder if that's necessarily the case. So um, so I, I guess it's possible um, hypothetically that you could always be being your true self, but either that 
changes from situation to situation or your true self is a little bit amorphous, which is kind of like what you're suggesting um, and that you express it differently in different situations, but still in ways that are genuine. So you're not like lying or deceiving people in situations, but it's like different people pull out different sort of versions of your true self or different, maybe even different, like, um, points on a distribution of how you feel about certain things. Yeah. It's like personality as an interaction with the environment, right? You're not the same person around your parents that you are around your friends. They just highlight different facets of who you are. Right. But is that, is that a sign of inauthenticity or is that like totally compatible with being very authentic? Well, I don't even really know what it means to be uh-huh. authentic. Um, I definitely don't think it's bad or that there's anything wrong with it or that it means that the person is somehow shady or untrustworthy or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Should we go to the, our third dimension? Oh, yeah. Third dimension, accepting external influence. I found this one a little boring. Um, it's just, you know, how much you feel like other people tell you what to do. Other people influence me greatly. Um, I always feel I need to do what others expect me to do. Um, and there I got an 11, which I guess is a little low compared to these, like the samples that they have in the paper. That's funny. Uh, so, so here I got an 18, which is like, Oh wow. You um, blew it out. Yeah. Like this is the one where I'm inauthentic. Um, so for example, like the question that's like, I do what people tell me to do. I'm pretty sure I do what people tell me to do. Like 95% of the time. So, right. So you're, maybe you're just agreeable. Like that yeah. doesn't seem terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I was a medium there, right? Because I, I often, I felt like, yeah, I do often do what other people tell me to do. Um, Wait, no. I gave myself a two there. So that's obviously one I didn't agree with, at least at the time. See, here's the thing. I have no test, retest, reliability. <laughs> <laughs> because you're so unauthentic. This is a me problem, clearly. Like all over the place. Um, Just a chameleon. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Who even knows? Um, other people influence me greatly. I gave that a four. I feel like other people influence me quite a bit. Uh-huh. You know? That that question really feels like it depends on who's salient in your mind at the time. Like if I'm picturing people who are close to me, I'm like, yes, I'm super influenced by them. But I interact with a lot of people and they don't all influence me greatly, that's for sure. Yeah, no, that's true. It's a big bit vague there. Like, who who are they talking about? Um, yeah, I read that as like some other people or certain other people. And then it was like, yeah, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So I guess my reaction to this scale um, and the concept overall is that this seems super individualistic. Mm-hmm. Like some of these accepting external influence items could practically be collectivism items, right? Um, and the, this conception of, well, there's this true kind of situationally unchanging you inside of you, and it's your job to know and express that just seemed like such a weird and like historically contingent thing about our particular culture right now, rather than any sort of like universal human thing. So my question is like, how, how do you have this kind of perspective? Because like when you say, Oh, there's this like, um, 
this idea of authenticity is like contingent upon, you know, believing that there's some true self inside of you and that you have some kind of like, I don't know, maybe you have a responsibility to express it or maybe, um, maybe you can just like sort of determine whether or not somebody expresses it or not. Um, but when you say like, oh, what a, what a modern notion or like what a notion that's like specific to our, I don't know, like culture or maybe discipline or something like that. I'm like, I had no idea. Like other people don't think this way. Like this is definitely one of those assumptions, um, that I was like, not even aware I was making. So like, what is the alternative? Yeah, the alternative is that you define yourself, for example, by your uh, place in a social network or uh, your role in some sort of uh, societal hierarchy. So I found uh, this paper by Roy Baumeister. It's a solo authored paper in um, JPSP in 1987. This was cited by um, one of the articles that that we read. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how I found, found it. And it's called How the Self Became a Problem, a Psychological Review of Historical Research. Uh, I thought it was kind of an amazing paper. It reports no new studies. He just reviews um, books, like history books, and he tries to trace the evolution of like our modern idea of the self throughout like European and American history. So it's like very, it's, it's explicitly limited to that, right? It's not like all across the world. It's like given our particular like cultural heritage in the US and where that came from in Europe, like how did this understanding of the self evolve? Um, and it, uh, he, he says early on in the article, this is a quote, a careful look at historical evidence suggests, however, that the concern with problems of selfhood is essentially a modern phenomenon. The medieval lords and serfs did not struggle with self-definition the way modern persons do. Um, and the argument that he makes is if you're a medieval lord or serf, you have a social role that's assigned to you. It's like you're the son of a serf and you're going to be a serf. Um, and you have a collection of things that you have to do as part of that role. And you do those things. And then beyond that, you're supposed to be a good Christian, um, which at the time was like, you're a good Catholic. Um, and eventually you get to go to heaven. Um, and that's kind of it. Like you don't have, you don't worry about who am I? Like what, what is my inner surf dude really want? It's like, that doesn't even come up. That's not even how people think about it. They think about it in terms of their like external roles and responsibilities, what that asks of them. And then what God says you should do. Okay. So, um, let me preface this by saying that I did not read the Roy Baumeister paper, but let me also, uh, clarify that we were not planning on reading this paper. You just did extra homework. I just I just dumped that on you <laughs> like like when we started recording. Yeah, this is not um, you're not a slacker for not having read this paper. Thank you. Um, you can call me a slacker for a meal, but but not for this one. Um, but I guess like so, yeah, not knowing uh, the details of the evidence um, Baumeister provides like that just doesn't seem plausible to me. So if you're, I don't know, a medieval serf, don't you like care what other people think of you? Don't you care whether people like you or not? In which case, aren't you reflecting on your own traits? Yeah, although it, it wasn't about traits. It was about, you know, uh, what are you doing? So people don't like you, I don't know, if you get drunk too much and don't do your job. Or you might go to hell um, if you don't go to church regularly. Uh, but it was all about behaviors. It's not about like essentially deep down, who are you? It's about, are you fulfilling your role or not? Okay. But if you're like looking at patterns, what is a trait, but a pattern of behavior? 
Yes. Good point. Um, but what Baumeister traces, I think, really convincingly is that people eventually started thinking of the self as being something inside them that was sort of hard to know about and that you had to invest a lot of time and energy into discovering um, what that really okay. was, okay. right? And that, that other people might find out about you or not. And then furthermore, that you should live in accordance with what that thing inside of you was really like and that it was okay. better to live in accordance with what it was like versus not. Okay. And none of that stuff, you know, comes up if you're just like, well, you know, I'm a surf and these are my, this is my job, you know, uh -huh. these are my religious duties and that's that. Right. Yeah, this, the, the conflict of whether or not you should live in accordance with whatever your inner self is, um, that's something that, that I would like to talk about when we get to the, the second paper that we were actually assigned um, or we assigned ourselves. Um, because So this, uh, the second paper that we'll talk about is, um, is authored by, uh, the first author is my colleague, Will Hart. And I don't want to misrepresent his position on this, but I think he would say that everyone is authentic because basically by definition, if you choose to engage in an action, um, even if there are like ex extenuating circumstances, like given the circumstances that you're in, if you do an action, then you chose to do that given those circumstances. So it is a reflection of your authentic self. I think he would say something like that. So, so basically he's like confused by, he's either confused by the definition of authenticity or maybe inauthenticity. Like he thinks that basically nothing is inauthentic. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, that seems like sort of, you know, it's, it's more consistent with this idea of um, self as behavior rather than as something that can't be observed even by the person, you know, whose self it is. Like you might be confused about what your true self really is, what your true desires really are. Right. Like instead you might say like, well, no, what you want is what you do. That seems pretty straightforward. But yeah, I mean, I take your implicit criticism that we should start talking about the papers that we had decided <laughs> to read. And and I agree with you on that. So so yeah, this first paper that, that you sent along is um, a working paper. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed this because it, it really, um, it addressed one of the concerns that I have about how people think about authenticity, which is from reading this paper with a scale in it and kind of thinking about like people's light conception of what authenticity is, it's supposed to be sort of spontaneously expressing your true desires in, in an honest way. Mm -hmm. But it seems weird to say like, oh, that person, they're super lazy. They never feel like doing anything. <laughs> they just lie around on the couch all day because that's what they really want to be doing. They're so authentic. Right. Oh, and this other person who like gets it together to go out for a run or to do something useful. Oh, they're so inauthentic uh -huh. because they're, you know, they're, they're not living in accordance with their desires. That seems super weird. Right. So it seems like there's a, a strong element of positivity in there as well. Like uh -huh. you can't really, your authentic self can't really be to just like want to veg out and eat snacks. Yeah. So I think that, um, in talking to, so first of all, the, the authors of this, um, paper, so it's, it's called Authentic for Me, But Not for Thee, Perceived Authenticity in Self-Control Context. At least that's what the working paper is called. Um, and the authors are Katie Garrison, Grace Rivera, um, Rebecca Schlegel, Joshua Hicks, and Brandon Schmeichel. Um, and so, yeah, their sort of main question, I guess their driving question is, um, are we more likely to see actions as authentic when they are impulsive 
or when they are regulated or controlled. Um, and so I guess both of those ideas sort of have some intuitive basis to them. So like the idea that the sort of like uh, the example that we talked about at the beginning um, where it's like, is the drunk person more or less themselves, right? I think both of those answers um, have appeal, right? So in one sense, if you're being like impulsive, then um, there's something about like what you want sort of like, I don't know, the, the like primary thing that you want or the thing that you would do if you would you were being completely uninhibited um, as being your authentic self, right? So if you if you think about like the difference in the way that you act around somebody that you live with or you or your family versus somebody who you're meeting for the first time, I think most of us would think of the way that we act around our family as the more authentic, right? Like we can really be ourselves um, as opposed to meeting somebody for the first time. We might be like, we might be self-presenting or like trying to impress them or something. And so intuitively that seems like um, a situation where the controlled aspect um, is less authentic. Um, But then you can also think of our, like when we choose to exert self-control, um, as something that is really uh, an indication of who, like who we really are, or what we value, or something like that, right? So you give the examples of um, not living up to your values by like not giving away enough money or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, if somebody were to make these big sacrifices and um, and prioritize their values over, you know. I guess their personal comfort or something like that, um, then that seems like important to the notion of who they are. And so those actions seem to be some um, reflection of their authentic self. So I guess like I was sort of hooked by that. Um, the the fact that both of those answers sort of seem intuitive. Um, and then within the paper, um, they also bring in this sort of added dimension of whether we're evaluating ourselves um, or others. Yeah, so the the self other differences, like in the end, they didn't seem to be super consistent, and I wasn't a hundred percent sure what to make of them. Um, I I thought that the positivity and um, control findings were kind of much clearer in the end than the the self other differences were. Yeah, right. So so the the sort of progression of the paper is um, in the first study. Uh, participants are presented with a series of sort of um, a series of actions Um, and they are asked to decide whether the action um, is a reflection of another person's authentic self um, or not, or there's, they're um, supposed to rate how much of a reflection of their authentic self it is. Um, And so some of these uh, scenarios in some of these scenarios um, this other person, they use a, you know, a hypothetical person, Alex, um, follows their impulses. Um, and in some of these situations, they exercise self-control. Um, so to give uh, an example, so any given participant would see like one version of this example or the other. Um, but the scenario in this example is um, you are in a heated sexual encounter with an individual and you really want to have sex. However, neither you nor your partner has a condom. Um, and so people who are in, in this case, 
people who see the impulsive action, um, they they learn that Alex decides to have sex anyway. And they say, is this a reflection of Alex's authentic self? Um, and then in the self-control condition, they learn that Alex decides to just make out instead. So this is the controlled action. And so we're asked, okay, like how authentic is this action? Um, I would like to add that this is not a conflict for lesbians. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There's no need to gloat. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So in this case, um, the results uh, were maybe not super strong, but the, the results suggest that people see others as more authentic um, when they're impulsive than compared to when they're being controlled. Uh, study two looks at the same effect. Um, but this time people are evaluating the actions as though they committed them. Um, and this time people say that they feel more authentic when they're doing the controlled action um, versus the impulsive action. So it's sort of like a flip from the effect in study one. Um, and then, so study three basically attempts to combine studies one and two and looks for the, the interaction between um, the target. So are you evaluating yourself or the other person? Um, and then the type of action. So uh, whether it's controlled versus impulsive. Um, and they do see the interaction that they anticipate. So basically um, when people are evaluating themselves, um, they see controlled actions as more um, authentic than impulsive. Um, and then for evaluations of others, there's not much of a difference between those two things. So the, the catch then is that when you, when you look at the scenarios and the kinds of responses um, that are used in these studies, uh, the problem is that usually the controlled action is quite positive, right? Um, so in the example that I gave, you know, doing the responsible thing is the like control, controlled option. Um, and so, you know, it sort of raises the question, is this a way that people would respond to positive actions generally, or is this something like unique to um, controlled actions? And that sort of raises this, I guess, like interesting methodological question and maybe conceptual question as well, um, which is like, how do you come up with controlled behaviors um, that people would actually engage in that seem negative, right? So in most of the uh, scenarios where you're caught between like doing the impulsive thing and doing the thing that requires self-control, the self-control thing is the good thing. Um, because I guess, why would you bother doing it otherwise? You would just go with your, your impulses. Um, so one of the examples, so they did try to include some examples in the study where the controlled action was more negative um, than the impulsive action. Um, but I still find this these scenarios really tricky. So, so one example is you're going to the grocery store with some friends. You really want to wear a mask, but none of your friends have them on. You are worried they will judge you if you wear one. And so here the impulse, impulsive action is, um, is wear a mask in, in this study. And the controlled action is to not wear a mask. Um, but I'm not sure if wearing a mask in this situation is the impulsive action or that doesn't seem clear to me. What do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, it seems like uh, a conflict between two desires that are sort of at the same level of impulsiveness or non-impulsiveness, where on the one hand, you worry about 
you know, I, I guess your own health or, or risking other people's health. And on the other hand, you worry about social disapproval from your peers. And so those two sort of fight it out. And then in the end, you decide to either do what your friends want you to do or do what you want to do, which is, you know, from the scale, you know, straightforward, right, authenticity, but doesn't seem as much like um, there's an impulse versus there's a kind of a controlled uh, desire that can goal, I guess, that conflicts with that impulse. Here's one that I think is a uh, is nice. Um, you're on way, your way to a meeting, and you're rushing because you don't want to be late. You see a homeless man sitting on the street corner. Feel a strong desire to stop and see if there's anything you could do for him. But but you know you also need to continue to work. So that kind of gets to you know you have this emotional impulse to do a thing. It maybe conflicts with some of your other higher order goals. Do you give in to the emotional impulse or not? Right. Right. And so in that case, the controlled action is going to work. Is continue on to work. Mm-hmm. And the impulsive action is stop and talk to the guy. Mm-hmm. I can think of other examples, although you can't really use them in a first person way because they're weirder. But you could say like, you know, here's this guy who's like a thoroughgoing racist and he hates people of this racial group. And yet he encounters a member uh, of that racial group in distress, and he's just intuitively moved by the person's suffering. And he really wants to help them, but at the same time, he believes that, you know, members of that racial group are terrible and should suffer terrible things. And does he go with, you know, his considered judgment that he hates everybody of that group or mm-hmm. his kind of intuitive pull towards, you know, something like that? Yeah, right. I don't know. Yeah, in all of these scenarios, it starts to feel like... um If there's some kind of like conflict that the the like action that's being treated as controlled has some sort of positivity to it. Um, But I don't know, maybe I'm just not being creative enough. Well, yeah, I mean, you can imagine people who have have, um, controlled desires or plans that you think are bad for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And you might even acknowledge that sometimes you have controlled desires or plans that conflict with um, the kinds of intuitive impulses that you think are positive. But I I agree that it's tougher. Like a, our normal self-control case is like, you know, you ought to do the good thing, but you have an intuitive pull to the bad thing. Oh, I shouldn't eat that cake, but it looks delicious, mm-hmm. right? Like why... Why go to the work of doing the thing that you think is wrong? Right. 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 Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so I think that the best that they're going to be able to do if they want to do um, these kind of first person things is that you have maybe some sort of like social responsibility or duty that pushes you in one direction, but a kind of a intuition, like a moral intuition that that pushes you in the other direction. Like, oh, I want to help this person, but I have this responsibility that I'm supposed to live up to. Right. Yeah. It's, I just always have, find myself like questioning whether that's really the person's impulse. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Anyways, it's like a, a methodologically, I think challenging, um, or more challenging to come up with those kinds of examples than it is to come up with the like standard, um, the impulses, usually like the worst behavior and, and the controlled behavior is better. And so, so yeah, so they, they tried to, um, to address the sort of like 
I guess, confound between positivity and control in study four um, and tried to sort of like balance out. They, so they it directly manipulated um, positive versus negative um, uh, actions in study four. Um, and so here the results become like a little bit more um, confusing. So when you start to like control for positivity, um, the you don't see the same sort of like clean pattern of simple effects that you see in the first couple of studies. Um, there may be like, there's, it seems to be there's some evidence that maybe there's still sort of an asymmetry between the way that people um, rate authenticity for themselves and rate authenticity for others such that they sort of like tend to view um, self-control as more authentic when they're rating themselves than when they're rating others. Um, but it gets sort of trickier to interpret once you try to control or account for positivity. Um, but another thing that you see in, in this fourth study um, that I think you sort of mentioned earlier, well, is this idea that uh, we tend to just think of positive actions as authentic. Um, so they see like that really strongly in the results. Yeah. Yeah. So this looks to me like, I, I mean, there are like some um, self other differences, but, but they're not that big. Um, and it, it really seems to be that something that's positive is seen as more authentic, which that, that really worries me about this whole concept of authenticity not that this is like a problem with a with a paper per se but more of a problem of like um measuring people's beliefs about authenticity of of themselves is that it's just inherently evaluative and people are going to tell you yeah like good things i do are authentic and right. that doesn't right like and it doesn't you know like logically isn't doesn't need to be the case at all but people have this, I think, strong association with authentic and positive, and it just feels weird to say that this negative desire that I have that I express sometimes, you know, I feel really angry and I lash out. Is it, Are you being authentic? Like, right. I don't think people would say that, right? So it's, it's just a, a kind of a conceptual issue with this whole notion of authenticity that, like, really, I think it's so freighted with positivity. Yeah, right. I was just thinking, like, okay, well, how could you capture the the construct authenticity but use a different word that isn't so like laden with positivity and then get people's real answers. And the first thing that I thought of was, um, was impulsive, which yeah, gets pretty, pretty circular at that point, but, um, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. So, so as far as these results go, it seems like when you ask people to make these sorts of judgments, well, when they encounter a, a behavior that's controlled, but positive, then they have things pulling in either direction. Like the, the controlled makes it seem less authentic, but the positive makes it seem more authentic. And so you get sort of a wash that looks a tiny bit different for self versus other, but like I don't I don't think like hugely meaningfully so. Um, whereas when we have self control uh, leading to the negative action, then it's a very clear pattern of results. That, so then the two are aligned, right? So then the impulse is really rated as much more authentic um, than the controlled action is, mm -hmm. right? So it, it's like yeah, in in the previous cases where they had just as you naturally, if you came up with kind of self control scenarios normally, um, where where they had self control leading to the more positive outcome, well, then you have these kind of competing effects of that, and so then they finally they mm -hmm. do this kind of mediation study. Um, uh, sorry, uh, a 
kind of a meta-analysis study uh, mm -hmm. where they put these together and they say, okay, well, controlling for rated positivity of each of these behaviors, which they have a separate group do, um, what is the effect of impulsivity? And holding positivity constant, impulsivity has a big effect on um, how authentic uh, that, that behavior is perceived to be, right? So if you're like, like, all right, you take the, the positivity part out, yeah, then like it's more authentic to be impulsive, which makes sense, right? Like you're you're not controlling your behavior as much. You're like letting out what's actually in there, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in some ways, like that's actually sort of an interesting takeaway from the paper is like the that the fact that authenticity seems to be so overlapping with positivity that even when you give people scenarios that really seem to present like um like the the sort of standard scenarios where um the impulsive action is is bad or negative and the and the controlled action is seen as more positive right even in those situations <clears throat> where the scenarios are written such that like this is what the person truly wants to do um and then they do it right so it feels pretty like aligned with the definition of authenticity um, but people still don't necessarily want to call that authentic, um, especially when they're talking about themselves. And so they'll like so sort of go out of their way to say, uh, actually, this this controlled thing is more authentic um, so that they maintain the positivity, I guess, of authenticity. So people seem to be really like sort of committed to seeing authenticity as positive. Yeah, yeah, I I did think it was like interesting this choice to write the paper in this way where it's a little bit like it almost like a detective story or it sort of reveals itself over the course of the studies. You're like, well, you know, we find this thing with these controlled or uncontrolled actions um, and there's these self-other differences. But there's something that's kind of misleading about those results, which is that the self-control scenarios all have this characteristic of, you know, you're you're or mostly had this characteristic of you're controlling yourself to do the better thing. And what happens when we uh, account for that? Wow, we get these totally different results. So which was cool. But at the same time, it's like, well, those earlier studies, though, had a pretty big problem that I think if you like buy into their logic and their results, which I really do, make it hard to interpret those results, right? So if like people's perceptions of how authentic was a behavior is the result both of how positive they think that the behavior is and how impulsive they think the behavior is like if you set those against each other then the rating that they give for any behavior is going to be sort of the the result of like of almost mm, arbitrary or uncontrolled variation in the level of like positivity um or impulsivity in that specific behavior right so mm -hmm. like if the thing that you prevent yourself from doing by self-control is really negative, then you're like, well, I guess that's kind of authentic. Yeah. If it's only mildly negative, then you're like, well, no, maybe it's more authentic to do the, to uh -huh. do the impulsive thing. So when those are in conflict, you can't really tell, right? Because you're not, you're not able to tease apart those two com conflicting uh, effects on judgment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that the, the question that I leave the paper with is like, basically like how much does the asymmetry between um, the way that people are evaluating themselves and the way that they're evaluating others hold up. Um, so like how robust is it for uh, control, like self-control versus impulsive behaviors? And then would you see the same pattern of asymmetry if you were just evaluating positive and negative behaviors that have nothing to do with, um, with self-control? So I think that the, the, the piece loses its sort of like 
specificity to self-control if like if you could just replace all of these behaviors with like a positive behavior that has no conflict or a negative behavior that has no conflict and you would still see that like for the self we rate positive things as you know highly um, reflective of our authentic selves and for other people we do that less so yeah, I mean that's that's like a known thing, right? So I know Nina Strominger has stuff about like positive true self beliefs that people have for themselves and and for other people as well. Um and I think that would follow pretty straightforwardly from that. Like somebody does something positive, it's seen as more authentic because you think that like deep down most people are good people. Okay. Yeah, so it's more consistent with that deep down person that they are, right? Mm -hmm. So I think what's interesting here is that like there is the impulsiveness, not impulsiveness part, right? Where people really do think that impulsive behaviors are more authentic once you co-vary the positivity of the behavior. Right. Is the the Strominger work is does that is there an asymmetry between people how people rate behaviors for themselves and for other people? So she looks at like people's beliefs about true selves, not behavior ratings. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't remember whether there's a difference between self and other. I wouldn't be surprised if people are like, yeah, in general, people have positive true selves, but it's even more true for me. Right. right? Yeah. Um, but it, I, I think the relevant point here is that it's true of people's beliefs of themselves and of people's beliefs of others, even if maybe they think, oh, it's true more so for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that can be the case. Uh, anyway, uh, cool paper. And so this is not, they, they do not have a preprint of this up, huh? No, not that I know of. Yeah. So listeners will just have to be satisfied with our, <laughs> you know, teasing the paper uh, on the show. And I guess I, I hope that they will be able to, to post a version for people to read soon. Welcome back. This is part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We are on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. The show's email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. That goes to all three of us, me, Alexa, and Mickey. Finally, the show's website, uh, fourbeers.com. You can check out any of our episodes there. You could also drop us a line if you like. If you're enjoying the show, just a plug to please rate and review us on the podcast platform of your choice, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, whatever it is. Uh, it just helps other people discover the show. Um, yeah, feel free to drop us a line and uh, let us know what you think. We always enjoy hearing from listeners. Um, Alexa, anything else to add? Nope. Sounds good. Awesome. All right. So you have another beer to explain, don't you? I do. So this second beer, um, also from Alan, is the Kevick Smash IPA. Um, so this is an American two-row pale with centennial hops and was fermented with Fermentus SAF 05. 
Whoa, those are a lot of words. What does smash mean again? It means single malt and single hop. Wow, that uh, that sounds special. Uh, <laughs> do you do you want to try it and tell us how it is? I do. Do you have the same thing, you will? Ah, uh, yeah. I'm just drinking more whiskey. Boring. More whiskey. All right, here we go. There's. Yeah, this. I think that I like this one even better than the last one. Um, yeah, it's super refreshing. Um, very citrusy, very hoppy. And I'm having some serious sadness about missing out on this. Is this Justin Trudeau's tyranny that you can't send beer over here? <laughs> so wait, that's a rule you can't send beer across the across the uh, Yeah, we've had people try and send us beer internationally, and it's like basically. <laughs> and you're like, why did we even bother with this podcast? I, I that's know, why I make you quit. Yeah, it yeah, it's a it's a reasonable response to the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so we we have a second paper to talk about, um, and I I really like this paper because it well yeah it tapped this idea that I had when I when I read the the paper about the authenticity scale, which was you know they do find that scores on the scale correlate. You know, with good stuff, the more authentic you are, the higher your self-esteem is, uh, the best you say you are, and so on. And and it's not just that, you know, people are kind of explicitly trying to you know, look good. Um, you know, you don't get those sorts of correlations between social desirability measure. So it seems to be that, you know, people who score well, on authenticity, genu- genuinely, you know, think these other good things. But it's like, yeah, is it possible that there's just some people who are like, I'm great and things are great, right? Uh-huh. It's not that they're trying to, you know, convince you. It's that they genuinely believe that. And that means that if you ask them, are you are you authentic a lot? You're like, yeah, authentic is good, definitely. And if you're like, do you like yourself? You're like, I definitely do. If you're like, are you stressed? I'm like, not really. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, I truly believe all that stuff. But it's almost all kind of like epiphenomenal from like being the sort of person who thinks that they're great and that things are great, which might be, you know, because objectively you live in great circumstances. It might be because psychologically you do really just uh, feel happy regardless of the circumstances you're in. Some combination of the two doesn't matter. But, you know, implicitly you kind of want it to be causal, um, in that, you know, you want to be like, well, if you live more authentically, you do a lot of work on being authentic, it's going to make you happier. And it's like, well, that maybe not. Right. And so I feel like this paper sort of speaks to that. Yeah, right. So so I would say like the the main question in this paper is like when people are saying that they're authentic people, is it that they prioritize actually being authentic or is it that they prioritize like the appearance of authenticity? Um, so yeah, so the, the title is to be or to appear to be evidence that authentic people seek to appear authentic rather than be authentic. Um, and this is paper written by Will Hart, Kyle Richardson, Christopher Breeden, and Charlotte Kinraid. And it was published in Personality and Individual Differences in 2020. Um, and so yeah, so this is the paper that I was mentioning earlier or like uh, the first author of this paper, Will Hart, um, he was the one that I was mentioning earlier, who was kind of like, does inauthenticity even really exist? Um, 
And so I think rather than seeing authenticity as some kind of like real meaningful trait, um, he sees it more as uh, a quality that people are interested in conveying to others, but not something that's sort of like deeper than that. Um, and so this paper sort of aims to examine whether, you know, people's self ratings on authenticity, um, whether when you sort of like tease apart an action that would be, uh, authentic. So their honest response from an action that would advertise their own authenticity. When you sort of pit those two against each other, um, which do people end up choosing? Uh, so yeah, I think it's worth sort of considering, um, how, they did this methodologically. So what they did was um, they told participants they made up a fictitious brain type. Um, so this is called the AB1 brain. And this brain type is said to indicate um, authentic living, um, which was one of the subscales of the scale that you and I talked about earlier, um, and also behavioral authenticity, right? So having this brain type, um, this is the brain type of authentic people, essentially. Um, and so then they have participants in the lab do a color gazing task. So I think this involves them staring at a color, okay, for a while. Um, and they're also told that this color gazing task is diagnostic um, of possessing an AB1 brain. So what the way that you respond on this color gazing task um, is an indication of whether or not you have this AB1 or authentic brain or not. Um, and then so they do the task and they're asked to say whether the colors change um, in intensity over time. So um, the experiment, the design is that um, the uh, participants who are in one condition say that, um, are told that if they say that the colors increase in intensity, um, this is indicative of an AB1 brain, and then the other condition, of course, is the opposite, right? So the people in the other condition are told that people who have AB1 brains will see the colors get less intense over time, right? Um, so you might imagine that if people are, you know, sort of responding in a way that would uh, indicate that they have an authentic brain, um, then there would be a difference between the two conditions, right? So, so people who, who think that indicating that they think the color is more intense um, is indicative of this AB1 brain will say that, and then vice versa for those who are learning that less intense is the more authentic option, right? So um, they also measure people's um, responses on a couple of authenticity scales. So one is a behavioral authenticity subscale. Um, an example item from this is I rarely, if ever, put on a false face for others to see. And then there's also an authentic living subscale, um, which we talked about earlier. An example, um, other people influence me greatly. Uh, and so what, what they find in the paper is um, that the more authentic people say they are, the more they're sort of like swayed by their condition. So the more that they um, will say, yeah, I see the colors um, getting more intense, if that would suggest that they have an AB1 brain, um, which is sort of at odds with the authentic thing to do, presumably, which is to say that the colors aren't changing, which is what's actually happening in the task.
Right. Like if you're more authentic, you're part of it is like, you're supposed to be really in touch with what's happening um, internally and presumably in your perceptions as well. And so you should be the person who's like very well calibrated about the thing changing color or not. Um, but so here's this kind of like a subtle point and I'm actually not sure which way um, Will, that's your colleague's name, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Feels about this. On the one hand, you could be like, well, these people are just presenting a front right so like they want mm -hmm. to appear as an authentic person and it's it's kind of like a deliberate thing that they choose to project like oh people like me better if i'm authentic like i really want to like show that i'm the sort of person who goes their own way and isn't pushed around by the crowd and mm -hmm. and then kind of ironically they you know see the colors in the way that would support that um or it could be that they really truly believe that yeah i, I agree that that's that's the ambiguity to me yeah yeah. And like, I totally buy that if you really truly believe that you're an authentic person and you're like, well, authentic people are supposed to see this, I guess it does seem like it's getting a little brighter or whatever, right? That there's no, you know, you're not aware of any deception or anything like that. Uh -huh. right. um, and I, I kind of feel like what he thinks is that and not that it's that people are kind of like deliberately putting on a show, but like self-presentation is kind of a... It's an ambiguous term in that way. Mm -hmm. I think the most effective self-presentation is the one that you don't see a self-presentation at all. You're like, no, I'm just being genuine, right? Like, you don't have any of the tells of somebody who's trying to mislead somebody when you really believe your own bullshit. Yeah, right. I, I agree with that. Um, I sort of, I, I do think that which of those two explanations um, is the more accurate one is relevant to sort of the overall interpretation of the the paper, right? So, um, so the, like the title says, evidence that authentic people seek to appear authentic rather than be authentic, and that sort of suggests some intentionality. So, I think what's suggested there is that people are looking at this color and they're like, "This is not changing, obviously," um, but I'm going to say that it is changing um, in the direction that would suggest that I have this authentic brain um, because I want people to know that. That's me. Um, and I think that is slightly different than the alternative, which is, and I think it matters maybe how ambiguous this color gazing task is. So if you're looking at this thing and you're like, I don't know, is it changing? Is it staying the same? Um, and you know that, you know, you have this self-perception of yourself as having, as being authentic, as having a certain kind of brain. Um, and then you assume that your results will be consistent with that. Uh, and so you sort of like have the sensation that that's actually happening. That feels a little, yeah, it feels a little different to me than self-presentation or, or than like prioritizing the appearance of authenticity over true authenticity, something like that. Yeah, no, that's right. That's uh, that language definitely implies that. Um, so they do, they do ask people, <laughs> this is kind of a funny question, like, hey, did you tell us that the color was changing in order to yeah. be, appear more authentic? Yeah. Right? And they're like, oh, no, no, of course not. Of course not. But who's going to admit to that, right? So I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the extent to which they buy it can be settled by their data. I mean, I guess you could say like, well, does it, is it stronger in cases where it genuinely is more um, perceptually ambiguous? And that yeah. would suggest more of a um they're fooling themselves although not entirely right because you might be like oh well if it's too obvious then i might get called out on it or something and so it's too dangerous to lie in this case yeah right like it makes me think of um what other tasks you could use so so yeah like i've used 
The reason that I wonder how clear a color gazing task is, is because um, I do like an exercise in my 101 class um, where we're talking about difference thresholds. And so I show them like two squares um, that start out being like exactly the same shade and then they start to differ by like a really, really, really tiny amount. Um, and then we talk about like when they can detect the difference between the shades. Um, and it's like really, um, first of all, there's like a lot of variability in people's responses. Sometimes they like see it going in the other direction. It also depends like a ton on the angle that they're looking at it and the lighting in the room and things like that. So it doesn't seem crazy to me that somebody could be look like gazing at this color and really sort of sincerely thinking, okay, this is changing when it's not. But, but yeah, I mean, alternatively, you could do something like, um, like an ash conformity paradigm, right? Where you're showing people lines of different lengths. And, you know, in those cases, it seems pretty obvious that participants know what the correct answer is and that when they give uh, a false answer, they're doing so because they're conforming to the responses of other people. So I guess you could sort of like rejig that so that it's like they're doing that to indicate that they're authentic. Um, yeah. And then in that case, I mean, I'd be sort of surprised if you find the effect in that case, but it also seems so blatant, you know, like you're, you're asking them questions about authenticity and then you're like, uh, I guess you're asking them happen. basically to lie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, then it seems like they really might get suspicious. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's it's it's gotta be tough to tease apart. Um I mean, I, it seems totally believable that it's some of both. That there's some people who are like, Oh yeah, just, I really just want to look authentic. It's good to be authentic and, and mm -hmm. other people who are just like genuinely convinced mm -hmm. and who are, you know, people who value that um and who believe that they have it, and those obviously go together, right? If you're like, I have this trait that uh, I, I believe that I have, and then it's a good thing and I like it. And, oh, this uh, this behavior is correlated with it. Yeah, you know, that's probably true of me too, right? Um, and I think there's a lot of latitude for like fooling yourself about what you see. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if there's, if there's folks who are like really genuinely thought that the thing was changing in the direction that what is it, it's supposed to either get like more intense or less intense, right? Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, Right. So I do think it's it's kind of wild to think about once you start thinking of this as like a self-presentation question, though, and you're like willing to admit that people are willing to be like a little bit deliberate about their self-presentation, that it's just you can go into this infinite regress, right? So like level one is authenticity is good. Mm -hmm. And I want to tell people that I'm authentic. Mm -hmm. And you're like, but maybe that's too obvious. Maybe the way to really convince people you're authentic is to be ostentatiously talking about how inauthentic you are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that shows that you don't have anything to prove. And so they're going to conclude that you're even more authentic than the person who is like, oh, I'm so authentic. Uh -huh. you know. But then you're like, well, maybe the third level of that is that, no, the person who really, truly doesn't have anything to prove at all is just going to say that they're authentic because that's what they really feel. And so on and so forth. And it's like you never hit a bottom there, you know? Yeah. Okay. So to that point, um, if somebody told you, like they described themselves to you as really authentic, what would you interpret that to mean? Honestly, this is, this probably doesn't say nice things about me. I think of people who are like, oh, I'm so authentic as first of all, 
Like you're a little self-obsessed. Why are you spending so much time about thinking about what you're really like? Uh-huh. Secondly, you probably just say like kind of dickish stuff all the time or do selfish things. And uh-huh. you're like, oh, well, I'm just being me. Uh, it's like, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm just an authentic person, man. I just didn't feel like it. Yep. Yeah, that's, I think that's kind of where my head would go to. I would also immediately become less trusting of them. Um, which is interesting because when you, when you talk about the like self-presentational value, I feel like that's what you're trying to signal, right? It's like, I'm authentic. Like you, I'm very trustworthy, basically. Like you can, you can trust that this is the real me. Yeah, no, it, it, it seems too obvious, right? It's so like, obviously like a positive trait that if you advertise it too flagrantly, I'm like, what are you trying to prove? Like either you're, you're too dumb to realize that this is actually not positive to boast about how great you are. Yeah. Or you're trying to trick me somehow. (laughs) I don't like it. (laughs) I do. I do buy the infinite regress though, because also if somebody, um, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm like at the point in the regress where if somebody said um, I'm really inauthentic or like I feel like the the even more extreme version is like I'm really humble or something um, versus like I'm I'm like really not humble. I would also roll my eyes at that person. Maybe I just roll my eyes at anybody who's like commenting on their own authenticity or, or humility. Yeah, you know, if you think about it in terms of like clothing choices, there's definitely like a type of person who wears sort of unusual or attention grabbing stuff in a way that feels like it's trying way too hard. And then I think mm-hmm. of the people who just wear like completely like normal stuff as like kind of being more authentic because it's like, well, you don't have anything to prove. But then maybe they're just being really clever about their signaling, right? They're like ostentatiously mm-hmm. normal to show that they're not trying to impress anybody. Mm-hmm. Ostentatiously normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I don't. Um, I definitely like have some people in mind who are like, and I've thought that about them. I'm like, well, yeah, they just like, they just wear like jeans and sweaters all the time. I'm like, wow, they really don't give a shit. That's so cool. But then it's like, oh, maybe they're just fucking playing a deeper game, you know, and they got me. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that sort of like leads into, um, a question that I want to ask you before we end, um, which is at the beginning, it seemed like you were sort of challenging the construct of authenticity or maybe, maybe identifying a little bit with will and in like thinking authenticity is not meaningful or there's no, no such thing as inauthenticity. Um, but I still like, I find that a little hard to believe. So, um, I feel like we just like have these intuitive, ideas about either like we can think of people who seem really authentic versus really inauthentic. Um, or perhaps we can think of like times when we feel like we we're really comfortable being ourselves versus we're really not comfortable being ourselves. So like that suggests to me that the concept is meaningful, but, but potentially like very challenging to measure. Um, would you disagree? Yeah, um, I think I only partly disagree. So I think it's like clearest to me in the negative, but there I don't know if inauthenticity is the best way to describe that behavior. So there's definitely people who are manipulative or deceptive, mm-hmm. right? They, they're they nice to you, but it's because they want something from you. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I mean, it's inauthentic in a sense, but I think a simpler way to describe it is just that they're trying to deceive you. 
Um, and then there's like a kind of a deep unhappiness that you might feel because you can't do the things that you want to do, or you have to hide some part of who you are, right? So like, Mm -hmm. let's say that you're attracted to people of your own sex, but you live in a culture where that's not okay, right? Mm -hmm. And that's obviously going to make you unhappy. You could describe that as like, I can't live an authentic life. I would say it's simpler to describe it as like, well, there's a thing that you really want that you can't have, or there's a way Mm -hmm. that you want to act that's not allowed. Is that like the best way to describe that inauthenticity? Maybe not. Like, I think what I push back on is this idea that we have this like underlying true self and that it has certain like attributes and desires and goals and that our job is to discover those and to live in accordance with them. And that if we do that, we'll be happier. I basically don't think that that's true at all. Yeah, I don't know. So like when you start to get into the like prescriptive stuff about whether it's important to sort of express your true self or find your true self, that, that stuff sounds more like more iffy to me. Um, but yeah, the, the idea that some people are kind of inauthentic and some people are more authentic than others, others, that, that seems intuitive to me. Like, um, I don't know people who, who are like, okay, like, 18 year olds who say that like their favorite band is the Smiths or something. I'm like, you're a poser, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. Maybe we should be focusing the literature around who's a poser instead. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 How often do you, you know, claim to have heard of musical artists that you're actually not familiar with in order to impress your friends? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Totally right. All right. Well, um, having opened up a new area for research, do you think uh, do you think we've done enough for the field? I feel like we've accomplished a lot. <laughs>